Let's get into our third week um, where we are in our series. You see behind me how to read the Bible and navigating the library of scriptures. Our third week in uh, learning how to read the Bible. You know, here at Collective, every single week, we open up the scriptures to teach from them. And uh, this kind of fall, we're taking a couple weeks to not just teach the Bible, but to teach about the Bible, with the Bible, on how to read the Bible. And so that's been our hope. And so for the past three weeks, we've been learning how to navigate the library of scripture. Now, quickly here is this idea in the subtitle of, oh, where'd it go? Uh, you're okay, Melanie's here. Navigating the library of scripture. Um, that language of library might be new for many of you, that this single book would be referred to as a library. And yet this is a truth that we have to have when we begin to learn how to relate to this book. It is a library. Though this is one you know, unified, you know, collated, put together maybe uh, in, you know, on your phone in one app or in one bound piece, it's got one ISBN number or whatever, all of that may be the case. And yet this is a compilation of 66 books rather than just one. This is hinted to us even in what's on the cover on you know, the spine of Holy Bible Bible's from the Greek word biblia, which is books in plural. So, you know, if you were going to make it, you know, not, you know, it's the, the holy books in one book. It's, it's a library. And this is vital for us to understand how we relate to the book, that we read it as a library. I want you to just to begin to immerse ourselves a little bit more in this, just to imagine a bookshelf like this one that you walk up to. This is, this is the Bible, do not let its single bounding confuse you. It is a library of various different genres. It is written in over, th in over three different languages, Greek, Aramaic, and Hebrew. It was written over the course of a thousand plus years. It is comprised of various different genres of narrative, law, poetry, apocalyptic. It has... Uh, 40 plus authors, compilers, editors built up of a, a wide range of people, of shepherds, farmers, sages, prophets, tax collectors, tent makers, physicians, fishermen, priests, philosophers, kings, written on three different continents over a thousand years. You'd be hard pressed to think of another work of literature that has this big a range of people speaking into and contributing to the work. And yet, that's exactly what this thing is every single time that you open it. To take this illustration a little bit further, is just consider if you walked into you know, a, a library or you know, Village Well, kind of the local bookstore here in Culver. I, I, I live there. I just want to live there. I, it's, it's my favorite. Um, so just imagine you walk into Village Well and you have this little bookshelf in front of you that has 66 or so of these books that are from all over the place in their writing style. There's cookbooks, there's law, you know, civic law manuals, there's like a, a car manual, you've got novels, you've got ancient works of like her, heroic like, you know, literature. You've got this random, you know, smattering of these books and you'd walk in and go, What's, what's unifying all of these? Is this just like a junk drawer of like books that they didn't know where to put? And so these are here. What unifies all of these different genres? How do these books relate to one another? Why are all these books put together in the same bookcase or in the case of the scriptures in this one book? What unifies this diverse library? Coming back to our definition of what the Bible is, we keep coming back to each week because we are spending this fall looking at the Bible as a library of ancient writings, both divine and human, 
that tell a unified story, a unified story that leads us to Jesus and forms us as his people. And so to navigate the library of scripture, today we need to understand the story that unites this diverse literary work. What is the story, the reasoning behind this diverse grouping of writings all being put together in one book? What is the story that unites all these things? Now, for some of us, we carry a particular form of this story uh, that looks something like this. You are living through your individual life with, uh, you know, a range of good decisions and bad decisions. And the hope is that by the time that you die, for whatever reason, you make enough good decisions to hopefully go to the good place. Normally, fat babies on clouds with halos. And you hope that you didn't make enough bad decisions to end up in the purple devil place. Emojis for the win, right? Come on, y'all. So most of us would hold to this kind of view, but maybe we're you know, a little bit more orthodox. And so the main thing is not, I hope that I did enough good things over bad things, but to go to the next slide, that you just hope that you like believe the right things and in believing the right things that now you get to go to the good place rather than the bad place. Emojis aside, this is the story most people think Christians believe. This may be the story that some of you in this room believe. This is wrong. The main problem with this view is this book. The scriptures, if you go looking for this story in the Bible, you will not find it. And this story, rather than being a healthy summary of what this thing is going on, is it is a bunch of half-truths that have been duct-taped together and a hyper-individualized story that revolves around the main character being you. When you think about this sort of story, it reminds me of that kind of meme, explain film plots badly. Like you've seen all of these these little like memes that basically take a movie and summarize it poorly. Some of my favorite examples. Uh, The first one, a billionaire devotes time and money to cosplay. It's Batman. Uh, The next one, a group spends nine hours returning jewelry, Lord of the Rings. Or my personal favorite, Talking Frog convinces son to kill his dad. (laughs) Star Wars. So in all of these, the reason why they're so funny is these so poorly represent the story. But they are like, yeah, you could, from a certain perspective, say that that's what that story is about. A group spends nine hours returning jewelry. And yet, for those that have seen the shows or the movies or whatever it might be, they know the plot is far greater than that and more complex than that. And oftentimes I worry that what we carry in our heads and then find confusion when we finally come to the Bible is faulty little paradigms like this that we feed into our story. Talking frog, you know, convinces someone to kill his dad. And then we go watching Empire Strikes Back and we miss so much, thinking that the movie is about something else. So again, what is the unifying plot of the scriptures? Now, some of us have been offered a particular plot Within the past couple of decades, a meta narrative that's really common within the church today, you'll see it behind me here, is this framework of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. This is the story of the Bible. Now, let's just do a little bit of an exercise right here, okay? So those of you that you know, are more familiar with this, creation, what, what chapters, what pages of the Bible is that on? One, maybe one and two. They always have this... You ever have all these forwards in your Bible where they're like explaining everything? You're like, I just want to get to this. No, okay, cool. So, okay, here we go. Yeah, so right about here, there's creation. 
When does Genesis, when does fall happen in the story of the Bible? A page later, okay, good. What Redemption, when does that happen? Anybody? When, way over here, but when? When's redemption? Je- Jesus, right? You guys can say Jesus. It's church. You're always going to be right if you say that. <laughs> so let's, let's go. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, there we go. Matthew. So we got these right here. Let's go. You know, we'll include John. Get Mark. There's Luke. Okay, John. Okay, now the ending of the story, you know, you know restoration, new creation. Where does that happen? What book of the Bible is that? Yeah, not even all of Revelation, y'all. The last chapter of Revelation. So what do I do with the fact that I've got a framework for reading the Bible that leaves out four-fifths of the Bible? Some of you are like, I really like creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And I'm not here to overly dog on it, but just to identify, as helpful as maybe that is, it doesn't account for most of the Bible and the danger of this is that what ends up happening is we end up leaving out the majority of our Bible in the way that we read and relate to it. I don't know what to do with the story of Israel. I don't have a framework that includes it. I was talking to Pastor Isaac this week. I would also argue this is really like anti-Semitic, like borderline, the heresies called Marcionism from the old early church that saw like the God of the Old Testament is icky and the people of Israel is being like over there. Like we want, we want a, we want a framework for the, a plot line for the Bible that accounts for all of it because Jesus gave us what? All of it. Yes. It's going to be okay. Some of you guys are really scared that I just like poo-pooed creation, fall, redemption, restoration. It's going to be okay. So the first question of today is what is a genuine plot line for the scripture that accounts for the whole story? Okay. The second thing I want to look at today is just as important in navigating the library of scripture is not just what happens in the story, but what the story is all about. And those are two different things. I have a five-year-old daughter, and so Snow White is just constantly on replay right now. And so to use Snow White as the example, the story of Snow White, as we watch the movie, is this you know, attempted murder by the queen. Snow White escapes. She lives with seven dwarfs. Then she gets poisoned. You know, true love's kiss resurrects her. Happy ending, right? That is the plot, a very, you know, very truncated version of the plot, but that is the plot of Snow White. But is that what the story is about? No. Coming from Grimm's Tales, what it was adapted from, the story is a, a contrast between t- true beauty and vanity as it compares and contrasts Snow White with the evil queen. Both of them being uh, externally beautiful but both of them having an inward beauty or inward ugliness that shows itself in different ways. And so you look at when, you know, the queen finally disguises herself so that she can poison Snow White. What's happening in that moment is her inner person is now being shown as her external ugliness, right? So Grimm's Tale is actually far more than just this story of this attempted murder of a princess. It is a reflection on true beauty versus vanity. And as you follow the story, it is Snow White's beauty that leads to her having a community that's built around her that causes her to be a person who's loved that ultimately leads to her resurrection. And the queen's vanity and ugliness leads to her demise. So what is the story about? It's about true beauty versus vanity. And once you know that, that, that is the, what the story is about, every time you rewatch it, you end up going deeper and deeper into the meaning of the story. 
So like I said, it's always on repeat. So some of the things that I've been catching lately is to notice how the story begins with Snow White and the evil queen both looking into magical reflective surfaces. And the queen is asking who is the most beautiful person, the fairest in all the land. And Snow White is singing into the reflective magical surface of the wishing well for her true love. A love that's directed at itself versus a love that's wanting to go outward into others. Come on, y'all see that? Or you just follow the story and you compare the way that Snow White deals with and treats the animals around her and then the dwarves get included, these kind of like mythical creatures and you watch the way that the evil queen relates to the animals around her, her little light crow and her little mythical creatures around her. You just watch and you see, oh, this is, it's, it's even if I didn't know that's what the story is about, it's getting me to see and compare these two to bring me along for the journey. The second question for today in how to read the Bible is what is that unifying theme? Not just the unifying plot, but the unifying theme of the Bible. Where once we know it, every reading of the story takes us a little bit deeper and deeper into that meaning. Sound good? Those are our two questions. With that being said, would you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6? We'll be in the second half of verse 16 into 18 today. And once you're there, would you join me in standing if you're able as we read from... 2 Corinthians today, beginning in about halfway through verse 16. We'll jump right in. So Paul, writing a letter to this diverse group of Christians in the city of Corinth, he says, For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will dwell and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch any unclean thing, and I will welcome you. I will be a father to you, and you will be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, your word, and thank you for the opportunity for another week for us to just take a deeper dive into understanding what this book is and how it speaks to us as your people. God, we all come from different weeks of varying highs and lows and just heat exhaustion. And uh, God, our desire today is, is to see the story that you're telling us through the scriptures, that it might become our story. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you would help me to speak in a way that is clear and concise. I, this is by far one of my favorite I, subjects of, of the series that we're looking at. And uh, my hope today is to be clear um, but also, God, that this would be a, an invitation for us, not just to marvel at the book, but to be invited into the story that it tells. So we pray that you'd be with us. And we pray. Amen. We'll go ahead and take a seat. So what is the Bible all about? We just read it. I will dwell and walk among them. I will be their God. They will be my people. This tripartite or three-part promise, these are the words that reverberate throughout all of Scripture. I was having lunch with uh, Jesse at the new Conby that opened in Culver, and it is amazing. You guys should go to Conby. Uh, pork katsu sandwiches, egg salad sandwiches, oolong with a little bit of sweet. Oh, come on now, y'all. Uh, you guys can go to Conby this week. But anyway, we're talking about all of this. I got distracted. I'm very, I didn't get breakfast today, so you can see it's catching up to me. Uh, as we're talking, I was kind of, he's like, so where's this series going? I was talking about this week and this three-part promise, and it was so good. He has never heard of it as the three-part promise. He always heard it as the eternal heart cry of God. Come on. How good is that? The eternal heart cry of God or the three-part promise. These words 
quoted the three of them all together. I will dwell and walk among them. I will be their God. They will be my people. Appear quoted together over 50 times. When you look for just two of them together, it's hundreds or even one of them. It's like hundreds of hundreds. Like just the, I, they will be my people appears over 200 times in the Bible. These words reverberate throughout all of scripture. And as with like the Snow White thing, once you know that's the meaning of the story, that's what's the, the main theme, you see it everywhere. So say it with me, the three-part promise. I will dwell and walk among them. I will be their God. They will be my people. What is the story of the Bible? I will dwell and walk among them. I will be their God. They will be my people. This is the theme that contains every sub-theme. If you are what's called biblical theology, it's literally like what keeps me awake at night, is the idea of biblical theology, which is the ability, because it's a unified story, to trace themes through the whole of Scripture. And this is the theme that contains all the sub-themes of, of blessing or priesthood, of temple, the tree of life, kingdom or holiness or sacrifice or our story of justice series from a couple years ago. That is the, this is the theme that all of those are contained within. The story of justice, if you remember that series, was all about what does it mean for God to be a God of justice and for us to be his people and for him to dwell within our communities as a place of justice. This is the theme that contains every sub-theme. The Bible is the story of God's unrelenting faithfulness to this three-part promise. And this is one of the things that is unique about the writings of the Christian, of the Jewish story. No other deity in all of human history displays this level of intimacy, care, and the desire for a partnership with humanity. Go, go read the text. Go read the stories. You find a God who may be king and ruler or judge, but a God who desires this kind of intimacy, this kind of the, the language of the Bible is a covenant the kind of language that, that we only use that language now to talk about something like marriage, that kind of a bonded relationship and partnership of love is found nowhere else other than in the scriptures of a God who desires to have a promised covenant relationship with his people. And so the first question that we talked about a moment ago, what is the unifying theme of scripture? I will dwell and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. And now rather than geeking out on this in the abstract, I think the best way to deal with this and show what, what does the Bible mean by that is by just getting into our second question. What is the unifying plot of this library? So you'll see behind me, Ryan's kind of working seven-part plot. Now here's the deal. There are many ways to plot the story of the Bible. And uh, this is, this, is, this is one crack at it. For those of you that are reading through, doing the book club through How Not to Read the Bible, you'll recognize this. They, uh, Dan Kimball in his book does a six-part movement with God's covenant with Israel having three little subplots. Um, so we're just, I'm doing seven. My best swing at it. You know, if you want to argue with me about it, that's okay. This is broad brushstrokes here. Seven movements and uh, seven because it's like, a, you know, Bible, it's, it's Bible number, you know, completion. So we'll, we'll go with that. And, and this is broad, because here's my thing. Most of us don't have a framework for this. And for some of you, this may be the first time that you've ever even had like a framework for like, what do I do with Leviticus, right? Here we go, all right? So here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna move through each of these seven acts. Get ready. I'm, I'm as scared as you are about this. And we're gonna move through all seven and just show how that promise develops through each of the movements, okay? Broad brush strokes. So we're going to do our best. And um, my hope is just to give us a framework for how, what is the story that this is telling about God's promise. So in the beginning, 
Creation and the royal task. The first movement of the story is like creation, fall, redemption, restoration. The story of creation, the first two chapters in the book of Genesis. Opening with this in the beginning story, it's a reminder that we're entering into a narrative. And what we find on those opening pages is all about God, his people, and him dwelling with them. The God that we find on the first pages of the Bible is the God who is a generous and good creator who gives both life and rest to his creation with Sabbath. His people are humans, humans that he identifies and names as the image of God, his royal representatives within the world who he has tasked to partner with him in extending the life and the order, the blessing of Eden out to the rest of creation. The story in the beginning is not a a, a perfect world, but a good one that is ripe for potential for more goodness to spread. And God is going to do that through his humans, through his people. And so there in the Garden of Eden, this is this little dwelling place where uh, literally in the opening pages, it says God walked among them in the cool of the day. So in the beginning, what do you have? I will be their God they will be my people and I will walk and dwell with them. This is, this is what the whole story is built around. A garden of Eden being this dwelling place of, of God's space, heaven and our space, earth. The God who formed and filled creation in the first days, now tasking humanity to further form and fill his good world. But as we move into the second act, the pages that would be not just Genesis 3, but all the way through 11. So there's, there's your little hot, Genesis 3 is not just the story of Adam and Eve eating from the tree. It goes into Cain and Abel. It goes in all the way to the flood and the story of the building of Babylon. The fall is all the way down into chapter 11. But back at the beginning of the fall, you have the temptation of this opponent to both God and humanity portrayed as a serpent And what the serpent seeks to do is bring about nothing less than a reversal of the Eden blessing, the promised experience they had. So rather than living as life with the creator God as their God, what is the invitation of the serpent? You can be like God's. You don't need to be his image. You can be God's yourself. And so they participate in an idolatry of lifting themselves up, of choosing good and bad for themselves rather than receiving that in a trusting posture of the creator God who knows what is good and bad. And so what this leads them is for them to no longer be his people. And so instead of spreading uh, the blessing and the life of Eden, they bring nothing but the curse of sin and shame of violence and injustice that begins with Adam and Eve realizing they're naked, moving to Cain killing Abel and moving further and further down with Lamech taking multiple wives and bragging about how he's killed so many people, further down into the story of Noah and then further into the building of Babylon where you have humans gathering together saying, we are going to ascend and make a name for ourselves rather than receiving our identity from God. And so what happens? Chapter three, Adam and Eve are exiled from the garden. And the story continues that the, the dwelling place of God, it's like earth and heaven become more and more separated. And it continues all the way into the flood, which is a decreation story. As God's life-giving, ruling and ordering presence leaves earth, what happens but a flood that returns back to in the beginning, everything was wild and waste and the waters covered the face of the earth. And so amid all of this story, there in Genesis 3, 
in the midst of humanity's idolatry, sin, and exile, there is a prophetic hope that comes. Where God speaking to the serpent says, he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. God sees that there is going to be, he is so committed to his, to his, these humans as messy and sinful and idolatrous and shameful and exile runaways as they are, so committed to I will be their God, they will be my people, I will dwell with them. He says one day there will be coming one from the line of humanity who is going to defeat evil, the opposer at the source, crushing its head, but through this act of mutual destruction, that as he stomps on the serpent, he will be struck on the heel, which if that's a snake, that means certain death. And so we, store, we follow then the story coming out of Babel, where we move into the next chapter, the largest chapter, the largest movement of the Bible, you'll see behind me, is God's covenant with Israel. This is the one that you could divide into like multiple, very broad brushstrokes here because in my original like writing of the sermon, this was like the whole day as we were just right here. So broad brushstrokes here. In, here in the largest section of the Bible, we come from uh, out of Babylon, God calling one individual by the name of Abram, later to become Abraham by name, who he says, hey, and we get the first version of the promise given in story. So it's alluded to, but in chapter 12, it shows up for the first time. Abraham, I'm going to be your God. Your people will be my people, and I will dwell with you in this place that it's referred to as the promised land this little piece of earth that's going to be the place where then through the righteousness and justice of Abraham's family, they will bring blessing to the nations. Do you see that God's re-kickstarting the Adam and Eve story in Abraham right there? Bringing blessing to the world, ordering and filling it all. And so we follow Abraham's story and it goes from Abraham to Isaac to his son Jacob, who would be named Israel, and then the 12 sons of Israel that would become then the 12 tribes of Israel. Story leads to them ending up being in slavery in Egypt. Moses being called out by God to set his people free. And I will be their God. Like it's just, it just appears throughout the whole story there. And so after the Exodus, God brings them through the Red Sea and then brings them to Mount Sinai for what, what we could only call a marriage ceremony where God reveals himself and says, I will be your God, you will be my people, I will dwell with you, and you will be a nation of priests bringing blessing to the nations. And there at Mount Sinai, we get the John 3.16 of the Old Testament, the most repeated verse in the Bible by the Bible is Exodus 34, where God gives himself, he reveals who he is. He says, the Lord, the Lord, or Yahweh, Yahweh. And then look at all these attributes of the, the same creator, generous God who brought order from chaos, now reveals more of his character as the story progresses. And now we find that the creator God from Genesis 1 is the compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love, forgiving inequity, rebellion and sin, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished. He is a God of justice. And so... We're just, the whole story of Israel is following what does it mean for this God to be himself and to be this God for Israel in the midst of who Israel is. And so as you follow the story of Israel, it goes from Abraham to Israel to Moses to David, the royal priest, this nation that's going to extend righteousness and blessing to the nations. And specifically, that story comes together in a really impactful way in the life of David, where King David has this conversation with God where all of that blessing that seemed to be true for the entire nation of Israel gets located in one son of David, who God says, he will be like a son to me and I will be like his father. 
And so the whole question is, okay, who is that going to be? But again, the dwelling continues in all of this. It's the promised land for Abraham. It is the tabernacle for Moses as they make their way in the wilderness. It becomes the temple built in Israel. These, each of these are like little new Garden of Edens where God dwells with and walks with his people. And so this, do, you see, do you see the story continue? This is what the Bible is all about. God, his people, and him dwelling with us. But the problem in the story is that as it continues is Israel makes the same mistake that Adam and Eve do, and it's, it's, it's just a replay of the same story. They choose for themselves that we will not, you will not be our God. We will pick from all of the gods of the nations, following them into injustice, of sexual uh, immorality, child sacrifice. The repeated line in the Old Testament is they forgot the Lord and they did what was right in their own eyes. They did the same thing as Adam and Eve in this story. And so no longer calling him their God, they no longer are his people. And so instead of blessing the world with righteousness and justice, they spread sin, injustice, shame, and violence. And the end of the story of Israel is where they are an empire that in all counts looks just the same as Babylon back in Genesis 11. And so God no longer dwells with his people. His presence leaves the temple the temple is destroyed. Israel is, is broken down by the empires of Babylon and Assyria. And the people of God, no longer his people now, are, are exiled from the promised land out into Babylon. But just like God's prophetic hope that he gave to Adam and Eve in the garden, through prophets, a prophetic hope comes in the midst of this moment as well. Where amid this condemnation and warning, this future hope appears. And this is where you see most of the uses of the three-part promise are the prophets speaking to those who have been exiled out into the four corners of the world, saying that once again, you will be his people, he will be your God, and he will dwell with you. And the way that he's going to do that is by following that promised line of David, that seed of the woman back in Genesis 3, who now this new language comes up to describe him as Isaiah, the suffering servant, Daniel, the son of man, Jeremiah, this new David, leading a new exodus as a new Moses, who will build a new temple where God will dwell with his people, giving them new hearts to live within that. And this will not just be for Israel anymore, but now back to all the nations. And then the Old Testament comes to a close. And we move then, after 400 years, into the next stage, the next act of this promise coming to fruition in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so the God of Israel, the God who's been promising, the God who is the creator, the God who is faithful, Jesus of Nazareth, this Jewish rabbi emerges on the scene and he develops that view even further and he begins to teach people that the way that, that you relate to this God to be your God is as your father, as our father. But even that, he claims to be more than just a rabbi claiming to teach us about more about God. He says, I and the Father are one, that he in some way is more than just a son of David. He is that son of God that was attested to in that prophecy to David. And we find Jesus as not just being I and the Father are one. He is the human partner that every single one of the humans so far have failed to be. At his baptism, what does the voice of God say over Jesus? My beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Here we have Jesus as the representative, that image of God that we were all made to be but have failed to be. And as he walks through his life, we see a display of what it means to be a person, what it means to be the people of God. 
He is like this royal priest who teaches and displays that promised life of for God to be your God and for you to be his people and for him to dwell with you. This promise that Jesus identifies and renames as the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven or in the gospel of John, eternal life. All three ways to say, I will be their God, they will be my people and I will dwell and walk with them. And so what what else could John's gospel open up with? But in John 1, describing the God who has come to be with us, the one who both was God and was with God, who became flesh and dwelt among us, made his dwelling among us. The word there is the word for the tabernacle. That Jesus is this little living temple. And when we look at Jesus, we see him dwelt, God dwelling and walking with his people. Did you, did you see? Like it just, it's like the Snow White thing. Like once you start, you, oh yeah, how has this has been here? All of that confusion, this is the story that it's all telling. And in, in the same way that we're telling this whole story is that what happens on Jesus' cross is though he is the one who is the perfect, perfect representative of that promise, he enters into our idolatry and its sin and that exile that we all have walked after and walked within. As he is led out onto his cross and crucified there, he is, it's, it's the, every single gospel makes a point to talk about the fact that he's led out of the city. He is exiled out of the city and there put to death. It's almost as if Jesus, though he has lived a life that doesn't need to end in exile and death, has chosen to walk that pathway to meet broken humanity where they are, living in the land of death, to claim them, to identify with them, and then by the power of God within his resurrection, bring them into new life with him so that those who had been cast off can now once again be his people and they can dwell with him forever. That is exactly what the resurrection is all about. And then we move into the next act. What does it mean to be the people of the resurrected Jesus? This is the books of Acts, the history and the letters. Where what do we find is now all of that language of Exodus 34 and the God that has revealed himself in this way is now our God and the father of our Lord Jesus Christ is the most repeated way that it's paired together. That we see that the God who is at work within this whole story is the God who is the father of our Lord Jesus and is our father now too. And the people of God or the forgiven family of God from all of the nations being brought together and made a new family. And so what most of the letters are dealing with is, well, what does that mean for the old markers of what it means to be God's people in the Old Testament? What does it mean for us to be together? And, and what are like some of the common warnings throughout all of the letters? Is the warnings of idolatry, sin? Because why? You, you've, got, you've got a whole story about how that's what happens. When God claims and brings a people for himself, there's the warning of idolatry and exile. And so that's what all the letters are trying to do. Don't make the same mistake as Adam and Eve. Don't make the same mistake as Israel. So in this story, the church is now, it's like the new humanity, this new Adam and Eve extending, extending kingdom life, this new family of Abraham blessing the nations through their righteousness and justice, reconciling God to humanity through themselves. And the dwelling place of God is no longer a physical tabernacle or temple. It is the church family as this new temple, as the indwelling Holy Spirit resides within them. And so the reason why this is the one that gets the cool gradient is because this is the story that is at this point unfinished. If you had like a little mall map, this is the you are here section of the story. But the story continues and we see where it ends with the return of the king and new creation. And this is Revelation 22. And so just to 
just to let Revelation do it for us, what do the final chapters say? Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away and they will reign forever and ever. Amen. And this is, this is what the whole story is about. Seven movements, broad brushstrokes to be sure, but this is the story that, that hopefully accounts for every page within this, that we can fit within this movement. And it is all a story not about you, not about you getting better, not about what you need to do right or wrong. Does it speak to moral? Yeah, absolutely. What is the story about? The faithfulness of God. Two really messed up people who just keep seeming to fall over again and again, that keep falling into idolatry and sin, and they end up wandering far from home, exiled from the life that they were made for. It's a unified story about God's faithfulness to his promise. And so here you have it. Here's how to, how to read the Bible as a unified story. This. Read this with every time you jump into some page. You don't read that as an isolated, in vacuum verse, but as some part contributing to this larger story. But to connect to something that we talked about last week, this is meant to be more than just a story that we read. For followers of Jesus, we believe that this is both a human and divine Writing. We believe that this is not just a human story about God's faithfulness. It is God's word to us and therefore is, it's an authority for our lives. But the question is, those seven movements, how is that, how is story authority? We want like the Ten Commandments. Just give me the like do's and don'ts. Or we want just, so does that mean I just only get like the commands from the New Testament? How is this? Story authority. Paul, as we looked at last week, said all of Scripture is, so how does it do that? So briefly, we'll move through this. Fun illustrations and examples, hopefully. So we're out of the Bible water hose. Now we're going to talk about Shakespeare. It was supposed to be funny, but it's okay, guys. I know that was a lot. You guys' are brains are mush. So let's talk about Shakespeare, because that'll mush your brains up even more. Uh, N.T. Wright is a New Testament scholar. He wrote an incredible little piece 30 years ago called How Can the Bible Be Authoritative? It's one of the best things on the subject. Absolutely worth 10 minutes. But you guys get the Ryan paraphrase version. So imagine Shakespeare. And he writes a seven-act play. But the seven-act play, the, the back half of the sixth act gets lost. Okay? So throughout all time, we've got this. So we find this awesome piece of Shakespeare. It's a seven-act play. And yet... Though it has an incredible ending in most of the story, there is this section within the story that it's just like, you know, it got ripped out of the book. And so the question is, well, what do you do with that? The play, everybody agrees, is undeniably an incredible story of power and excitement. And everyone agrees it has to be put to the stage. It has to be played out. It has to be brought to life. And so what do we do? We can't just write the missing act for once. One, because we're freezing the play now in some one form for all time. And we're committing the author to be responsible for something that he didn't necessarily pen. So the solution, N.T. Wright, in this kind of you know, make-believe imaginary world, is that you would give the parts of the play to actors for them to immerse themselves in the surrounding acts around the missing one, and then to immerse themselves in the language and culture of Shakespeare, and then for them to act out, to improv the missing portion for themselves. And so the seven acts 
existing as they do, would be the authority for their part in the play. And any new improvisation could be could be objected to on the basis that it was inconsistent with the behavior of a character earlier in the plot or that it was inconsistent with some other sub-theme or plot. So the great example of this is uh, The Office, Michael Scott, because he goes, he goes to improv class, you know? It's one of my favorite episodes. And his favorite thing is in every scene, they're like, you know, they're playing out something at like, you know, a Froyo place or whatever. And Michael Scott just comes in and his immediate thing is like, he's got a gun. Like, and it just, I mean, he throws up the whole story in this new way that everyone's like, what in the world? Like every single time, okay, we'll try that again. Like, you know, Michael, okay, Michael, now let's, and the first thing that he goes to is, you know, improving that he's got a gun. And what's happening in that moment is there's a story that's being developed and Michael Scott, instead of taking cues from the story, decides what he wants to do. And so he comes in and just plays it out. And so then the whole argument is he's being inconsistent with the story that's being told so far. In the same way, the goal with the Shakespeare example is not to simply just replay the previous acts, but, and T. Wright writes, to, to, um, to enter into the story and then with both creativity and consistency, fill the gap in which you find yourself. To make this another example, is the new Rings of Power show that Amazon just put out this week. So here's the whole thing. Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power. It's got Lord of the Rings in the name. You know what that means? It can't be a show in a vacuum. It exists within a predetermined universe and world with rules for how it works. And so that needs to be done with both creativity. You don't want to just sit and watch Two Towers again. I mean, Kyle Young does. He'll just watch Two Towers forever. Or you don't want to just watch the same movie being retold. You want it to be new and life-giving and creative, but it has to be consistent with the story so far. This is how sequels are done well or done poorly. Is it creative enough that it's engaging to us, but is it consistent with the previous existing source? If Lord of the Rings and Shakespeare is too geeky for you, Star Wars, because this is just what I swim in. So Star Wars has this thing behind me. I've added some things because the internet wasn't up to date. I'm telling you, this is the world I live in. So this is literally what Lucasfilm calls the canon. The same thing that we refer to as the Bible, as the canon of scripture. This is the canon of Star Wars. And notice the range of genre here, okay? So you have movies, all of these things being made over a 50-year period. You have Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. One of the genre of the canon is a theme park. What? And then you also have video games. You have animated shows for kids. You've got uh, live action shows, different um, illustrated things and different illustrated titles, different directors, but one story. And then you even have up in the top left corner, some of the best storytelling in Star Wars in like the past 20 years is the High Republic books that take place like hundreds of years before the movies. This is for free for some of y'all. Those books are so good. And I just finished my, my fourth or fifth one in the series last night. But it, the whole point is, here's the canon. Now, at the end of Return of the Jedi, after the prequels were done, Disney buys Lucasfilm and decides we're going to do sequels. And they hand the reins over to J.J. Abrams and Ryan Johnson. And so here's the thing. When those guys entered this state, it was not a sandbox for them to play in. There was a pre-existing canon that they needed to receive as authority. What was the problem with the sequel trilogy? For J.J. Abrams in Force Awakens, what many fans' complaint was, the story was maybe consistent with Star Wars, but it wasn't creative. It just felt like there was just, it wouldn't take us anywhere. 
And similarly, when Ryan Johnson did Last Jedi, what was the main complaint? It was creative, but it wasn't consistent. In the words of Mark Hamill, Luke Skywalker himself, after reading the script for The Last Jedi, he said, I fundamentally disagree with virtually everything you've decided about my character. It was creative, but it wasn't consistent. And as for Rise of Skywalker, that's for a whole nother day. So here's what I'm saying. What it means for the Bible to be our authority is, yes, we quote passages. Yes, we reflect on and apply the Ten Commandments or the immediate words of Paul and quote them and refer to them. But the primary way we relate to this book is more like Shakespeare than a drill sergeant, more like we're working out a sequel script than an immediate rule book. And so the whole purpose of a life of immersing ourselves in this story, of reading it, of preaching it, of y'all getting together in your discipleship groups to apply it, is for us to ponder what this means for us acting out our part in the story today. What does it mean for him to be our God, us to be his people, and for him to dwell with us? And so the way that you read the Bible as a unified story best is when it becomes unified to your story. When you begin to start living like this creator God at work within Jesus and in Israel is now at work within your life. And the people that have been his people throughout all of history, holy and set apart to him, you are learning from their story, both their faults and their failures. And the God that dwells in the tabernacle, the Garden of Eden, the temple, is now dwelling within you and I. The best way to read the Bible is a unified story. I would argue the only way to read is a unified story is for you to unify it with your own. And what's so awesome is because this act, our part of the play has been being put out for the past 2,000 years, a new improv troupe coming up with each generation to play out their part, is when we come to the stage, it's not that we just have this, but we're also able to read this and look back at 2,000 years of generations, both their failures and their faithfulness to creativity and consistency, speaking into the way that we now carry and play our part out. This is the sort of reading that we're being invited into, a creativity and a consistency that learns from the faithfulness and failures of those that have gone before, and then to ask, how do we live it out in our day? And so this sort of reading will push the more theologically conservative of you to imagine new implications of being the people of God to move away from a stark fundamentalism that only looks at what does the verse say without saying, what does this verse mean for me in my life now and here? But it will also push back against the theologically progressive of us not to run after creativity so far that we forget consistency to the story. It pushes both of us in one way to find a middle space of a faithful continuation of the story in our lives. What does this look like? Before getting into the practice and the closing, let's return back to 2 Corinthians 6. I want to do a quick case study to show how Paul does this same kind of creativity and consistency, okay? How are we doing? Good. Deep breath. You guys are just happy to be in a place that has air conditioning right now. You're like, we'll be here all day, Ryan. Just like, keep it cold. So Paul, look back at 2 Corinthians. You'll see it with me. So Paul does the promise right here. I will dwell and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. And he says, okay, therefore, and then right he goes into this quote from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 52, verse 11, where Isaiah says, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch any unclean thing and I will welcome you. So Paul, watch what he does here, quotes from Isaiah's words to exiled Israelites in Babylon which Isaiah himself is pulling and using language from the book of Leviticus and how it talks about the priests. 
Do you see the connection of the story? Like, just what's going on here? And so just as the priests had to be set apart, ritually pure, distinct, and holy unto God for them to enter into the temple or the tabernacle to be in the presence of God, Isaiah writes that to exiles living in Babylon as a way for them to come and be morally set apart to even geographically separate themselves from Babylon so they too may dwell within the presence of God like the priesthood did. So Paul picks up on all of this and now he's writing to Christians in Corinth this Roman city with pagan gods and all this kind of stuff all around. And he uses those two examples to now root a command for his church that he's writing to, for them not to be ritually pure so they can go into the temple or the tabernacle and not writing to exiles so they can return back to the promised land. He's writing this to Jews and Gentiles for them to be morally set apart from the uh, norms and the relationships and the practices of this pagan city so that they can be the temple of God that they've been called to be. Which is why the verse at the beginning was, for we are the temple of God. So notice both the consistency, the theme of being, to be the people of God is to be set apart from what is common, what is ordinary, or even what is opposed to God, to be set apart and distinct from it, but the creativity in different applications at different stages of the story. And all of this is because, like he said, dwelling place with God, you are now the temple, and so there's a new mode for this. So here's what's, what's fun now, is then for us in reading this, in our continuation of the story, we are gathered here as a diverse group of Christians, not in Babylon or Corinth, but in Los Angeles. And so the prompting for us playing out our part in the story now is to ask, like with Isaiah, like with the priests, like with Paul in Corinth, what are the relationships, norms, patterns, and practices that are accepted as normal? And what does it look like for me to walk as a set-apart person of God? See, the Bible doesn't say anything about smartphones, the entertainment that you watch. It doesn't say anything about the internet, dating, because Paul roots this in um, relationships that they have in the Corinthian church. Paul doesn't say anything, the Bible doesn't have anything to say about, about online dating. People keep asking, well, you think this is, I don't know, this was written 2,000 years ago. But through meditating on this part of the story, we can then go, okay, Understanding what's going on here, what does it mean for us with creativity and consistency to wonder what it means to be set apart as the people of God in our norms, our practices, and the way that we relate to others? Creativity and consistency. Paul continues, we're after saying, come out from among them and be separate. Do not touch any unclean thing. Verse 18 says, I will welcome you. I will be a father to you. You will be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. What's he do here? Paul is quoting from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, which is really, this is, I, I, I can't understand how profound this moment is here, what Paul's doing. Paul is quoting from when God sits down with David and goes, hey, you're going to have, there's going to come a son from your line. He will be like a son to me and I will be his father. Singular. That promise, which we're on the other side of the story developing, we know that that gets fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is the one who has God, God is his father and he is his son. Paul now says, for those who are in Jesus and a part of his story, that, that intimacy, that relationship that would have made David have goosebumps 
is now actively the experience of those of you who are in Jesus, are disciples and family of God. He is your father. You are his son or daughter. So again, creativity and consistency here. So Paul looks back and goes, man, that was true for the son of David, but because it's true of Jesus, and now we're in Jesus, I can, with creativity and still consistency to the story, remain and take that promise for myself. That though it wasn't for me, this promise now becomes for me because, of Je- because it was about Jesus. This is what all next week is gonna be about as we look at the Bible as messianic literature. So that's a case study I hope that was a little bit helpful. And just seeing how, like, this works. It's not just immediate verses and think there's a, there's a way of interacting with the story. So practice, and then we're going to move into a time of response and let the Spirit move to us in, these, in, in what I think the Spirit is, is uh, wanting to say out of this. So first, your practice for this week is available at collectivechurch.com slash current series. The way that this is done is in our discipleship groups. And so if you are not a part of a discipleship group or over the summer fell out of one, QR code, we want to pair you into this because our teaching is not just about information, but formation. Us becoming not just people who know how to read the Bible, but read it in community and let it shape us. And so the practice for this week is going to be learning how to study the Bible. And so at the practice for this week, there's a handful of exercises, different ways to study the Bible that you as a group can either all choose one together or each choose individual different ones. You'll go and do them this week. And then at your next discipleship group, you guys are going to do a debrief on what did you see, how did it go? And so there's recommendations, all that there, because the whole point of a series on how to read the Bible is to get you to actually do it. So that's what you're going to do this week. And I would encourage you as you go through it, Look for the three-part promise. You're go- it's, it's there. Just assume it's there, and you'll find it. And, uh, and, and read it in light of the story. What is it at this point in the story? How does it go? So thank you all. I know today was a fire hydrant, but this is one of those things that, man, if you, I know people who have spent their whole life in the church, and they have n- never once understood, like, what's the story of the Bible, and, and had it like that. So there's a one-week marathon Maybe we'll come back and do like a seven-week series one day, and we'll just go through, we'll spend a little bit more time on it, but I'm tired and hot, so let's move into time of response. So here's the thing. Like I've said time and again, the library of Scripture is unified around what? The story of God's promise and plan to his people. That promise that God will be our God, that we are his people, and he is going to dwell among us. And the main purpose of this unified story is not simply that you read it and study it, but that you respond with this invitation to unify and find your story as a part of that story. For him to be your God, to know him as your creator, to know him and experience him as the God who identifies and knows what is good, to identify and know him as the God who is faithful, who is slow to anger, who wants to relate to you as a father, who wants to know you as his son or daughter with that sort of intimacy. There are some of you today that is that part of the story that is your next step in learning to unify your story further. That you know that as we've been talking through this, there's maybe by the Spirit's prompting some some idea, some vision of who God is bumping up around there, both in your head or in your heart. And just walking through the story today has revealed some part of your perception of God that I believe the Spirit is inviting for you to lay down and leave here as you see the story, as you see the God of this story in all of his fullness. There are some of us here that when it comes to what does it mean to be his people, 
that as I've been talking through this today, there's something in your life that you go, man, I, I am part of the people of God. I, I know that I belong to Jesus, but there is a part of my life that is not consistent within this story. The idea of you being his royal partner, of your calling to extend the blessing of Eden through righteousness and justice, of holiness and being set apart morally as a person who who images God's character to the world. There's some maybe consistency within the story that you've been putting off to the side, maybe in the name of creativity, and today the invitation is to reunite those things. For some of us, maybe it's that that story of both Adam and Eve through the story of Genesis or the story of Israel of idolatry, sin, and exile. You see within your story that very same story being played out. Idolatry, choosing something other than God as the source for what is good or bad, following that into sin and injustice that's left you with shame and brokenness, and it leaves you feeling exiled from God and even from life, where your life feels like a wilderness wandering. The the good news of this story is that every single one of the lowest points of the story, God continues to say his promise, that no matter where you've gone or what you've done, I will be your God, you will be my people, and we will dwell together. And that invitation is there for you and I today. And then for some of us, just simply, what does it look like for me to dwell and walk with God? And as we move into a time of response, believing that the Spirit is with the praises of his people, what does it mean for Spirit, you to be here walking among us as we worship today? See, the gift of the story of Scripture is not just an incredible story that we get captured up into and, and enraptured in our reading, but that in Christ, through the Holy Spirit, it becomes our story as well. And so no matter where your story has gone, what what amounts of idolatry and sin and these feelings of exile that you have is a God who continues to promise no matter what you've done, no matter what's been done to you, no matter where you've gone, the God who looks at you in all of the mess and says, I will be your God, you will be my people, and we will dwell together, not just here and now, but forever in new creation. Let's pray.